Radio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Jihadism turns up not infrequently in the mainstream media. Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, ISIS, these are all jihadi groups. The word jihad simply means struggle, and can be interpreted both as an internal struggle within oneself, or as a more general struggle in the outside world. So what else do these groups actually have in common? Contemporary jihadist movements started gaining prominence in the 1980s and 1990s, especially in the context of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. These movements have conducted large-scale military campaigns within countries in civil war, such as Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, where they managed to control and administer territory. They have also notably carried out terror attacks in Western countries such as the United States, France, and Belgium. Today, I'm talking to two experts on transnational jihadist networks in order to better understand how these groups work together and apart. Mona Conwell Sheikh is senior researcher and head of the Global Security and Worldviews Research Unit at the Danish Institute for International Studies. Her current research focuses on transnationalization and containment patterns of contemporary jihadi movements, and she's the head of a five-year ERC-funded project on this topic. Dino Kraus is a PhD candidate with the Danish Institute for International Studies and the University of Copenhagen, as well as a visiting researcher at PRIO. In his current work, he focuses on al-Qaeda and the Islamic State as transnational jihadist rebel networks, and the role they play in armed conflicts around the world. He's particularly interested in examining broader patterns and trends across different conflict zones, which could help us understand the puzzling question of why these jihadist groups have been more successful in some regions than in others. Welcome, Mona and Dino. I'm really excited to hear about your research today. This is a super interesting topic, um, jihadism. And even though I think, uh, I'm sure most people have have heard of it, um, I'm not sure that most people necessarily understand it. Um, So I'll start with a question first to, to you, Mona. How do you define jihadism in your research? And specifically, how is it different from Islamism? Because I think a lot of people mix those two things up. Thank you so much. Uh, that's a great question. So our project that we are part of, the, it, it focuses on the transnational current of uh, jihadism, which is different from the more nationally oriented uh, jihadi movements, such as the Taliban in Afghanistan or uh, in Pakistan or the Hamas, for instance. Um, but uh, jihadism... Uh, broadly speaking, is an ideology centered on a particular understanding of the term jihad, which in itself just means or signifies a struggle. Uh, And it has had like different connotations, different meanings for Muslims throughout the uh, history, spanning from this very inward uh, struggle uh, to a more physical uh, struggle to defend Muslim lands or to expand uh, the religious authority of God. But I think if if I needed to like define what are the three main uh, components of jihadi ideology, uh, then I would say that uh, 
what is characteristic of jihadists is that they see jihad as this very physical struggle, but with a like spiritual uh, purpose as well. Uh, and, and and conducting jihad is what makes you a good Muslim. So so they do not, for instance, acknowledge a very orthodox classifications of the inner jihad or the inward jihad as being the greater jihad. Um, or uh, what is, uh, you know, significant of being a good Muslim is the struggle for becoming, a, you know, a better self and achieve a higher degree of awareness of God. Because such ideas have actually been mainstream within uh, Sunni Islam and was popularized by, uh, for instance, one of the most famous theologian and, and philosophers, Al-Ghazali, in the 11th century. Uh, but but for jihadists, this like emphasis on the inner jihad as the most important uh, form of jihad is just an excuse for neglecting uh, the real duty of uh, jihad. And in this sense, jihadism is actually a very anti-traditionalist um, and very like modern phenomenon in spite of uh, their embracement of uh, an ideology of looking back and, and trying to restore authentic Islam in its in its original uh, version or what they see as as being the original uh, version of Islam. Uh, and the second uh, trait is that they, uh, you know, for them, this physical fighting is actually a central pillar of faith, uh, along with the uh, five traditional pillars of Islam, like fasting, praying. Uh, paying zakat and so on, so they they place this on par, place this uh, you know obligation on par with those kind of traditional obligations, and that the third one is that uh, jihad is not something that they see as a fight or as a, a obligation that comes after you have tried all other options, such as for instance trying to convince your enemy about the right interpretation of Islam or the right uh, interpretation of jihad, as typically the Muslim Dawa movements do. Uh, so, so jihad is actually seen as being part and parcel of being a believing Muslim uh, and, and a duty that for them uh, lasts until the day of judgment. So, so it's also like an apocalyptic movement uh, who have, you know, who see the end of days as, 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 as being very near. So just a quick follow-up yeah. um, before I move to a question for Dino. Uh, and I know, again, that there are also different um, groups and, and different interpretations, even within what you just explained. But is the concept of jihad, uh, in the cases that, that we're talking mm. about, uh, is it supposed to be undertaken in the same way for everyone? And of course, like, in Norway, in, right now, we, we're seeing these um, uh, cases of IS women. Uh, there's an IS woman on, on trial or in other countries mm -hmm. as well, where uh, which is very sensationalized, of course, women going to, to fight. But um, is the expectation that jihad can and should be undertaken by, by any believer? Mm -hmm. Or what is kind of uh, the interpretation there? Yeah, exactly. What is actually, it's good that you mention it because they have also this very... Um, individualized perception of jihad, that jihad is an individual duty for every Muslim. Uh, so it's not like, it's not a collective 
duty. It's 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 characterized as a duty for the individual Muslim, which defines uh, whether this person is a believing Muslim or not. And that is actually very uh, particular for jihadists. And and you also asked about earlier what is actually uh, uh, making them different from, from uh, Islamist uh, movements. And one could say that in a way they developed, uh, uh, you know, from... Uh, you know, Islamism and got inspiration from grand ideologues of Islamists such as Hassan al-Banna and Maududi. But then at one point they developed an identity that was in in opposition to Islamist streams of thinking. Um, and I would say that, you know, if, if if I had to point at one thing which, which makes jihadist movements different from uh, Islamists, then they actually disagree on what is the right and lawful strategy uh, that Muslims should should embrace in order to restore the sovereignty of God. Because if one reads the ideological texts of, uh, for instance, chief ideologues behind jihadist movements, they would criticize uh, Islamists for their willingness to uh, adapt to prevalent systems or to be part of the parliamentarian systems and so on. Uh, and to be defensive only in their perception of uh, jihad, and then of course be neglecting uh, the duty of jihad. Uh, so, so in the jihadist worldview, facing the political reality would demand uh, an armed struggle, uh, and Islamists would say, uh, no, you can actually uh, go into dialogue or some kind of uh, discourse with the prevalent uh, systems. Mm. So, Dino, before we uh, start talking about groups and also a little bit then going into your research, is this type of group a recent phenomenon or have you have we seen other similar groups throughout history? Um, thanks for the question and also thanks for, for the invitation to this podcast. Um, I would say that transnational jihadism in its current form, historically speaking, is a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, and one phase that was quite crucial for the development of transnational jihadism as we see it today were the 1980s in Afghanistan, because that was the time when you had the Mujahideen resistance movement that was unfolding against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan which occurred in 1979. And over the following years throughout the 1980s, what happened was that you had a large-scale movement of thousands of predominantly Middle Eastern and North African foreign fighters, which uh, became known as the so-called Arab Afghans. And they would join the Mujahideen resistance movement. And that flow of foreign fighters was mobilized by a group of jihadi ideologues who were saying what Mona also pointed to in, in, in the point that she just made, made um, that it's an individual duty. It's an obligation to travel to Afghanistan and defend uh, your fellow Muslims in their fight against uh, the secular superpower, the Soviet Union. Um, it was also a crucial episode because at the end of that decade, um, the late 1980s, Al-Qaeda was created in uh, the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
And um, after the end of the anti-Soviet struggle, so in the beginning of the 1990s, you would then see many of these foreign fighters returning to Middle Eastern countries, but also to places like Bosnia or Chechnya. And they would kind of continue their struggle in those places. So Afghanistan, in that sense, actually um, was very influential for the further development of the transnational jihadi movement. Uh, still, is it a new phenomenon? Because I, I think that's kind of the, the other question you, you, you would then want to ask, right? It's recent, but is it really new? And here I would say that um, one similarity that's often, uh, that's often discussed also in research is whether what we see with the transnational jihadists, whether that is actually something that we have seen before in regards to the transnational leftist movements of the 20th century. So uh, the Maoist Marxist rebel movements uh, during the Cold War, because actually, if you look at those transnational movements and transnational jihadism, you can see some interesting parallels there. You can see that both of these movements uh, enjoy transnational support structures, um, sending of fighters, of weapons, financial support. You have a transnational revolutionary ideology in both of these movements. You also see a challenge of liberal capitalism, uh, U.S. geopolitical hegemony. And I think that's quite interesting. <clears throat> Still, at the same time, there are also some differences, such as that uh, the transnational jihadi movement is driven or it has at least a religious, a strong religious component with the left, which the leftist movement did not have. Um, and the leftist insurgencies of the Cold War also had a different kind of support structure because it came from a superpower, whereas, you know, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, they're non-state movements, so the support they provide is quite different. Um, and also now we have the internet, so that allows for completely different mobilization of foreign fighters, which also we didn't see in the Cold War. So I would say it's a recent phenomenon. There are similarities with earlier uh, transnational movements, um, but also differences. Okay, interesting. And also an interesting counterfactual you sort of bring up there, if we imagine what, what it would have been like to have the internet um, with these other um, movements as well. Um, before we talk a bit more about, yeah, the, the kind of transnational um, networks and, and explaining their success, Dino, um, Mona, I would love for you to touch on how do these groups attract new recruits? And we maybe got a little bit into it just there talking about the Internet, but uh, how do they how do they do it? And also, um, why are people maybe interested in these groups and joining these groups? That's also a great question. So, so there's a lot of uh, a different range of explanations out there, and also both in scholarship, but, but also in, in in policy cycles. But but one explanation is that these um, groups uh, like Islamic State and Al Qaeda that we have seen uh, uh, popping up in different uh, conflict zones, they they often appear in um, conflict settings where like local grievances, they merge with this religious purpose that they offer. Uh, so, so in the years where I, for example, worked on the emergence of the Pakistani Taliban in, in, in Pakistan, it became clear to me that recruitment was, for instance, made 
easier due to uh, the drone campaign that the U.S. military was uh, was conducting in the tribal areas, uh, and it was also made easier because of um, the initial insult of the tribal autonomy uh, in the northwestern frontier of Pakistan that the Pakistan army uh, uh, made in Pakistan or the lack of, uh, for instance, um, access to the privileges um, that the rest of Pakistan had, access to education, access to infrastructure, justice, and so on. Uh, so very, very like worldly grievances. Um, but the question which then appears is why do the jihadi ideology have resonance uh, and 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 how, how is it that it can lead to this kind of emotional mobilization uh, which we are also seeing uh, which makes people travel from one uh, you know one uh, part of the world to the other to join uh, these different conflict uh, settings uh, so one aspect that I think is is important to understand better is actually their particular theological appeal, and that is uh, particularly something that we are trying to do in our project. You know, what part of their theology or their approaches to these key concepts like the caliphate, like jihad, or even the definition of being a good Muslim is actually familiar to Muslims because it can explain why it has, you know, these kinds of movements have resonance uh, and what part of their uh, warfare theology or thinking on theology actually represent a very postmodern interpretation. Uh, so theology can play a role, but the question is, you know, how exactly and what are the, uh, you know, main uh, interpretations that these organizations represent. But it, as I said, in the existing scholarship, you would find many approaches to understanding exactly this question uh, about mobilization and the mobilization uh, ability of these movements. Uh, and political indignation is, of course, another answer to give. Uh, you can you can see that um, uh, if you look at it, uh, you know historical historically you would see shifting narratives about you know this insult on religion that people buy into, um, and it could be for instance earlier on uh, it was narratives about colonialism in North Africa that was a mobilizing factor. Uh, the fall of the caliphate in the 1924 was also a, a, a narrative that had been used to mobilize uh, to the jihadi movements. The Six-Day War in in 1967, where uh, there was this war between Israel and the Arab countries that the, for the Islamists meant that, uh, but also for the jihadists later on, that, you know, that uh, Islam had lost its... Uh, its its main territories um, and heartlands. Uh, so so I think we need to remain very open to the fact that there are many different pathways to embracing a jihadist movements and a jihadist movement. And in some areas, it might have to do with socioeconomic conditions. Others with the feeling uh, of societal marginalization, which we are often discussing in the West. Uh, and others again with very personal reasons that can ha can can uh, are related to the feeling of personal redemption, uh, you know, 
being redempted from from sin. Uh, and others like Dino mentioned could also just be, be related to globalization as such or the technological development. Uh, I remember that um, it hit me when I was uh, in, in Bangladesh on a field trip um, that one of the largest terror plots in the country was um, like in contrast to what one might expect in a developing country was traced to an upper class private university student who had internet access and access to the global uh, propaganda. Uh, and a lot of scholars would point at exactly that, you know, the globalization of uh, either like globalization of technology, but also the globalization of a particular warfare technique, such as suicide attacks being the main driver of global jihadism. Uh, the fact that we are now much more connected and 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 it's easier to mimic conflict behavior. Um, so so what I, I would say that in the scholarship right now, we would see an overweight of scholars focusing on these very individual pathways to radicalization. They focus on social networks and have this very micro-sociological interest in who knows who, uh, who went where and became <laughs> radicalized. Uh, and what we are interested in in our particular project is actually to look more into the macro dynamics uh, and look at the macro level narratives that drives these movements. For instance, how come, and we are asking that question still and trying to figure it out, you know, how come that sometimes you see uh, conflicts uh, elevated to a level as it also happened uh, during the Cold War? where these local conflicts become hotspots in the overall narrative about a deadly conflict between Islam and the West. You know, what are the different levels of this kind of conflict constellation uh, that we are seeing now? How does the local play together with the transnational? Uh, so our uh, interest is perhaps more precisely on the escalation of this particular kind of conflict constellation with jihadists more than trying to understand radicalization and individual uh, pathways to radicalization. Mm, and you bring up so many interesting points there about, like you say, that there are many different pathways and, and um, there's not one narrative or one pathway. Um, and Dino, I mean, I kind of have a question for you that's in a way Mona has already really answered, but how do we, explain their success. Uh, maybe you have something to add, though, onto, onto the things that Mona was talking about. Yeah, I think um, something to add maybe could be that if we, if we look at these groups as rebel groups, and uh, research has shown that um, these conflicts with transnational jihadist groups are um, relatively resilient compared to other types of conflicts, also, success is also a little bit relative because if we look at what they want to achieve, which is to, you know, create a global Islamic state, then their success has been very limited, actually. But they have still also often remained resilient uh, against full defeat. So um, in that sense, if we if we say, well, that is some some kind of a success, I think part of the explanation uh, can be found in their 
transnational, um, you know, that transnational outlook. What, what, what do I mean by that? Um, if, for instance, you have a rebel group that has access to territory, to a safe haven uh, that lies beyond the reach of a particular state that the group is fighting against, uh, that's a strategic advantage, right? Because if a state is trying to conduct counterinsurgency operations and a group has the ability to retreat beyond that state's reach, then that, that contributes to its resilience. If we now look at Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and if we see them as transnational movements, then this implies that uh, if one of their regional uh, affiliate groups uh, suffers defeats or military losses, then the transnational movement as such can adapt to that, right? You have foreign fighter flows that might go to a different um, war uh, war area or battlefield, so to say. Uh, these organizations, they can also adapt the way that they invest resources, send money to different places. So I think, and, and if you look at Al-Qaeda, what happened in 2001 when you had the, the US-led invasion of, of the country, that was a, a severe blow for Al-Qaeda who suffered um, from, you know, leadership killings and many of its uh, commanders were killed at that time. But then the group could adapt to that by investing more heavily into constructing uh, affiliate groups in Algeria, Iraq, Yemen. And that adaptability you don't see with with other groups that are explicitly fighting for, for instance, territorial autonomy of a particular part of a country or that want to have a say in government, because those groups, you can, you know, you can offer them uh, the ability to engage in politics, to demobilize, um, or you can give them territorial autonomy. Um, but with these transnationally oriented groups, that becomes more, more, more difficult. And uh, also, if we look at these regional affiliates that I just mentioned, um, one example would be uh, Al-Qaeda's uh, affiliate group uh, in Algeria, uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, Akim would be the, the abbreviation. That group emerged as an Algerian jihadi rebel group. And over time, over recent years, it became weaker and weaker in uh, Algeria due to counterinsurgency measures, um, leadership killings and so on. But at the same time, as it got weaker in Algeria, a part of that movement kind of uh, expanded its operations towards the south, towards Mali. And now you have the remnants of that organization that has linked up with other jihadi movements in the region. You have them operating in Burkina Faso. So again, you can see this kind of adaptability to, to, to losses that you don't see with nationally uh, focused rebel groups. Can I just add one point to that? Because sometimes the, uh, these uh, uh, the merge the the merges emergences we see they're not so strategically decided on, but sometimes they can also just be driven by local movements that just declare their oath of allegiance uh, towards this umbrella brand of either the Islamic State or the Al Qaeda. Um, so. So the as as Dino also said, you know, when we're talking about, you know, why do these movements expand so easily? Uh, then sometimes it's just a matter of a local organization saying that we are loyal to the Islamic State or we are loyal to uh, Al Qaeda uh, without anyone actually uh, orchestrating it from above or from the top leadership. 
Right. Yeah. They they can just say, well, we're part of that movement, and and yes, yeah. and then yeah. they are. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, but do you know? And Mona, of course, you can jump on this if you want as well. But do you know? I just wanted to pose one what I think is one very interesting, crucial question, which is why are conflicts with these groups rarely resolved in a peaceful way? And are there any exceptions? Um, There are some examples. Mona talked a little bit about the difference between Islamist groups and jihadist groups. You have peace agreements with Islamist groups. Recently, the MILF rebels in the Philippines, or not so long ago, signed a peace agreement with the government. Um, You have the kind of odd agreement with the US and the Taliban, um, that was recently uh, made. Uh, there are some other examples, but I think these cases are often groups that have a more national agenda. Um, and it seems that there's something that makes it more difficult for Al-Qaeda or Islamic State affiliated groups to be included in peace agreements. And I think that's a really, really important question to address. Why, why is that the case? I think um, I would maybe make two points on that regard. First is that these groups, they have very far-ranging demands. They um, are sort of maximalist, these these claims that they make, right? They reject nation-state boundaries. They reject democracy. They reject uh, human rights for minority groups, uh, for non-Sunni Muslim parts of the population, um, for women, and so on. And they also have these transnational aspirations. So if a group strives for transnational expansion, the question emerges then why would that you know, group agree to demobilize and give up its weapons for, let's say, political inclusion if the real goal goes beyond uh, participating in politics or have a say in the politics of a particular country? And on the other hand, there's also what I would call audience costs. You have governments that are fighting against uh, prescribed terrorist groups, right? They are listed as terrorist entities. So it's often unpopular to negotiate with these groups, uh, if not seen as a taboo, at least to do that openly. And to a similar extent, it's also unpopular among the transnational jihadis to negotiate because that would mean that you talk to your enemy, whom you constantly uh, call as apostate, disbelieving government, uh, and so on. So I think they speak to their audiences, and the way that this is this kind of um, communication is done makes it difficult to enter negotiations, at least openly. Um, but there are some some cases, maybe to just very, very briefly mention that. Um, you had a group, or you, you still have a group that's called uh, Hayat Tahrir Asham, HTS in Syria, that was once a Al-Qaeda affiliate, but split from Al-Qaeda in 2016 uh, formally and has since developed um, and has tried to portray itself as more moderate and open for dialogue and negotiation. Uh, you also recently had um, Al-Qaeda's Sahelian branch, that announced that they would be willing to enter negotiations with the Malian government if the French would retreat all their troops from the area. Um, There were reports recently that this group actually reached an agreement with the government in Burkina Faso. So I think in the future, it will be very interesting to see to what extent we will see more of this. You know, these formerly affiliated jihadi groups uh, in different places of the world that for one reason or another decide to... uh, 
at least declare their willingness to negotiate? I think that's that's an interesting uh, question if that will become more or less frequent in the future. Well, thank you both so much for breaking down this very complicated topic. And uh, I feel like I've learned a lot and I, I'm really uh, interested in the research that you're doing and we'll put a link to the um, to the project in the description of the episode. But thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Hauger. Writing this week by Simona Seslo. Music by Martin Lindemann.